Hi friends, welcome back to Solutions Watch for June of 2022. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and as I'm sure regular viewers of Solutions Watch will not need to be told, the real solution that I think we are working toward is the solution, the revolution of the mind that is an intergenerational project of raising the types of human beings who will be able to live, thrive, and foster independent communities in the future. That's a tall order considering where we are starting at today, which is exactly why it is such an urgent task to be teaching the next generation of bright young minds uh, to help them to avoid the intellectual pitfalls that are all around and that are being set, I think, deliberately to booby-trap them into wrong ways of thinking about the world, which ultimately leads to the types of problems that we see in the world. So with all of that as preamble, I will, of course, not need to, uh, not need to say that I receive a lot of feedback on this particular issue. For example, I got this email in from Chris, who writes, my wife and I are homeschooling our five children. Our oldest son is only eight, and we have been using products like Abika? Abeka? I don't know that. And, and other Christian publications. My fear is these are more of the same curriculum that teaches us how to think and not what to think. Teaches us how to... I think that maybe that was backwards. My wife and I both spent our time, K-12, in the public fool system, and it's hard to alter the way we have been taught to think. My question is, how do I teach my children to think for themselves, to recognize lies, to question everything, and put the truth together using various sources, instead of referring to the fact-checkers' fact pants-on-fire tags? And uh, on another note, I got an email in from Leave. I am looking for alt-government-slash-history books you could recommend for the government course we're creating for our high schoolers. So I, I know there are a lot of parents out there in the crowd who are looking for resources, looking for ways to start teaching their children not just names, facts, dates, figures, and the types of things that they might learn in a standard history textbook, but also, more importantly, the real, the real underlying ideas behind this, and not being taught what to think, but how to think about these things so that that process can benefit them throughout their life. So today I have a special treat, uh, a return guest to Solutions Watch. You will remember that about a year ago, I was talking to Connor Boyack, the creator of the Tuttle Twins books, or co-creator, um, about teaching children about liberty. And if not, please go back and review that episode so you will know a little bit more about the Tuttle Twins book series. And we talked at that time about this process of helping children to learn um, about the things that they're probably not going to be taught by their school teachers. And on that note, I have the great privilege, once again, of receiving an advanced media copy of a brand new book, a Tuttle Twins full-on history textbook, a 240-page uh, story-based illustrated history textbook that is due to be released in the coming days. I have read my advanced media electronic copy, and I'm here to talk about it today with, of course, Connor Boyack. Connor, thank you again for joining us again today. Hey, thanks, James, for having me on. And I really like what that uh, listener said earlier, the public fool system. I've never heard it named that. I'm going to borrow that. So I, I love that. And that's exactly the problem that we're up against. It really is, isn't it? So, okay. So with that as context, then um, tell us, uh, again, I'm going to assume people are familiar with the Tuttle Twin series. If not, please do watch our previous conversation where we talked about that. But tell us what um, made you want to tackle this. This is obviously a much bigger project undertaking than the sort of the average Tuttle Twins book. So what made you want to get into the history textbook producing business? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it is a business. Um, so, you know, over the years, we get a lot of requests from 
readers. We sold, I think, 4 million copies now. Millions of kids are reading intelligence books. And so we have a pretty decent community. People are always reaching out to us saying, what about a book on this and this? And there was a lot of demand over the years for an American history book. And I thought, well, there's tons of stuff out there. There's you know, curriculum and books, and why do we need another one? And so about two and a half years ago, I decided to do a little experiment to dig deeper and see you know, what the problem is. I went on Amazon and eBay, and I bought about a dozen uh, social studies textbooks that are teaching, let's say, third through sixth or seventh graders about America's founding and America's past and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and so forth. And I wanted to see, like, how are these books talking about that issue? And what won't probably surprise any of your listeners, James, is that, you know, these books did really good at what I'll call the superficial history, the names, the dates. On this date, someone wrote this or said that to this person at this place, and they had this type of musket, and were wearing this type of outfit, and, and all that kind of stuff. What these books miserably failed, I realized, is to teach the substantive history, why these things happened, the ideas of the past. You talked about, I think it was in that first uh, email you read from the listener, uh, the revolution of the mind. And I loved that because uh, John Adams, when he was once writing a, a letter, I believe this one was to his wife, Abigail, he said that the real uh, American revolution took place in the 15 years preceding the first shot ever being fired at Lexington and Concord. Well, wait a minute, what? The, the revolution started with the shooting, right? That was the all the wars and the battles and everything else. John Adams is saying, no, that was just a, a kind of uh, outgrowth of what the real revolution was. And that is that the colonists had this big mind shift where they saw themselves no longer as British subjects and, you know, uh, being, you know, subservient to the king, but as free, independent individuals with rights that should not be infringed. And the altercation that outgrew from that was just a manifestation of the mental intellectual revolution that happened. And so I asked myself, James, do any of these social studies books talk about that intellectual revolution, which by the way, was like 90% because of John Locke, whose writings spread through the colonies like crazy. So how do these books treat John Locke? If they mention him at all, it's with a brief little blurb that they just move past. And so I wanted to say, we wanted to step in as a team and say, there is a need for teaching history the right way. We do need to teach the ideas of the past that, that is the substantive part of history. So that was about two years ago that we decided to start working on this. And now we've uh, got the book done. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, a lot of work obviously went into this. And uh, I should I should make it clear right up front, this is not sort of an average what you would think of, or at least not what I would think of. It's been a couple decades, a few decades since I've been in the public fool system. So but uh, you know, you think of a history textbook, just names and dates and facts. This is story based. It is a narrative that leads you through different things that uh, shows through the eyes of the Tuttle Twins children who are learning about these things, various the, the meaning of these various events and ideas. So, very interesting approach. Um, I assume that was your intention from the start? You were going to do a sort of Tuttle Twins-based, story-based history textbook? It, it was our intention because we've seen the magic that storytelling can make happen when we're talking about, you know, the destructiveness of the Federal Reserve, or the importance of entrepreneurship, or all these ideas that we cover in the, the, the main Tuttle Twins series, we've seen how kids can learn these big, complex ideas when it's presented through story. And the added benefit that you touched on, James, where uh, our readers are learning through the kind of experience of the Tuttle Twins, who themselves are learning about American history, the, the beauty of the narrative format is that Ethan and Emily, our main characters, can ask questions. 
So they can be taught something and then they'll be like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Or wait, why did that happen? You know, instead of this questions that kids might naturally have when they're taught this material. And so by using that narrative format, our readers can kind of go along and get their questions answered as we go. So it's proven for us to be a very helpful format in teaching complex ideas. So we absolutely wanted to leverage that for this book. So walk us through the uh, the the narrative. Where does where do you start this history lesson, and where does it finish off? So uh, so this book um, we haven't really pushed it too uh, big online yet in terms of announcing this, but I can definitely share it here. When folks uh, look at the spine, they're going to see volume one, and so what we intend and hope for this is that this is actually going to be a multi-volume series. This particular book starts with twelve fifteen and goes all the way through 1776, and that's where it, where it ends. That's where most people say, that's when America was born, and that's when things started. And you talk to Ron Swenson, right? And that's America's birthday. And, and so um, our book actually ends there. Why? Because volume two, which we hope to um, do next year, is going to start with 1776 and continue going from there. We wanted to go all the way back to 1215 in ours, because when you think about how America was formed, um, it was formed because of colonization, which is not a wonderful thing, and yet that's just how it happened, and so we have to study it. And so why was colonization happening? Well, that happened because of exploration. Well, why was exploration and you know Vespucci and Columbus and all these people, why were they going around exploring? Well, it's because of trade. It's because of the Silk Road. So when we talk about early American history, if we rewind, we have to talk about how the Silk Road was just bringing all this amazing trade, spices and silks and all kinds of things all over the place. And people were really getting excited. Wait a minute, I can have access to things that are like, you know, countries away. This is amazing. And so that trade flourished and it grew. It led to the exploration, you know, on ships across the sea that led to colonization, which led to America. So we go way back to say America actually started because of trade, because of this desire for humans to be able to connect with one another and share their resources. That is the real story. You've got the folks out there today saying 1619 Project and America started because of slavery. And it's like, well, wait a minute, like slavery was and is happening all over the world. It's not a uniquely American thing. And while it absolutely was an element of American history that we should talk about, and we do in our book, that is not the story. Of America. That is not why America was created. It was religious freedom. It was trade. It was these important things that we should discuss. And increasingly, the school textbooks today are de-emphasizing if they're even bringing it up at all. So we wanted to tell that authentic story, talk about some of the tough issues as well, give them the nuance that they deserve, uh, all in an effort so that families can have these these like meaningful, rich discussions about uh, our country's past. You know, I, I have to admit, I I opened up the book. Okay, here's the Tuttle Twins American history book. I'm going to learn about, you know, 1770s or something. And suddenly we're at Marco Polo. And <laughs> there's this dinner conversation talking about trade that's, I think, well, quite well done. Uh, it, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting way to start it. And that rolls into the next topic, which rolls into the next topic. So it certainly does unfold in a way that I think probably makes as much sense as anything that you're going to be able to present to people in this age range. And you, you say you're aiming at about grade three to grade six level? Somewhere in there? Roughly, yeah. We're saying like, uh, you know, kids seven to 13. Uh, you know, our typical Tuttle Twins books are more like five to 11. They're shorter. They're a little bit more simpler. This has a lot of kind of meaty, you know, ideas and events happening. And so we feel like uptick in the age a little bit is going to be important. But the magic of what we've done, and this is honestly the weird thing, James, I never like 
plan for this. This wasn't like a strategic effort. It's like, we've got teenagers reading our Teletoons books. We've got parents reading our Teletoons books. And so the age format, even though it's targeted for younger children, what we find is that this becomes a family experience because the 16 year old, when no one's looking, he might be flipping through the book, right? Because the ideas are new and interesting in a way that that 16 year old has never learned them before. And so we, we like to call our family books rather than children's books in a way, because um, especially like if you stop a parent on the street, I see you've got, you know, tragedy and hope behind you there on the wall. So let's say you stop a guy in the street and you say, Hey, read, you know, tragedy and hope. And what's the likelihood that, you know, your average adult is going to read a book like that or economics in one lesson or the road to serfdom or right. They're just not going to at all. Their defenses come up, but you know, I, I don't like to read, show me something on TikTok, you know? And so the beauty of what we're doing is it's in a format where those defenses come down. In fact, it's not even telling mom or dad, hey, you need to read this for yourself and you have homework because no one likes that. Instead, it's, hey, do you want your child to be well-rounded? Do you want your kids to be critical thinkers? Do you want them to understand the world they're a part of? Every caring parent says yes. And so when we say, well, here's something that you can you know, read with them, have discussions every night, you know, whatever, suddenly the parents, their defenses are down. They want to be a good parent. They want their children to learn these things. And so that's how we hook the parents. And suddenly they're learning a lot of these ideas as well. And man, every day we're getting you know, emails from parents talking about the, the, the questions their kids are asking. Mm, I mean, yeah. I would say like, oh, yeah, our, our books are for kids age, you know, five to 11 and members of Congress because like <laughs> the people don't understand these things. That These are adult ideas that even kids are understanding. So it's a thrill to see how these young kids can really embrace and understand these big ideas. Well, my boy is now nine. My girl is six. And so they both can enjoy the uh, the sort of the main series title twin books. Um, but uh, for this book, definitely it's more based on my boy. Um, and I've been reading it with him. We're, uh, we're through the first three chapters now. So we're into chapter four. And uh, <laughs> I asked him, I said, I'm going to be talking to Connor Boyack. I'm going to be talking to the guy who makes the Tuttle Twins books. What do you, what do you, what do you want to say about this new book that he's, he's working on? And he said, yeah, I kind of like it. <laughs> so <laughs> Corbett Endor- Kid approved. All right. <laughs> I think that's about as high praise as you're going to get. <laughs> but honestly, I, I am enjoying watching the story unfold. Um, because again, one thing seems to lead to the next in a very... In a way that seems to make sense, uh, even from a childlike level, I think you can understand the way that this. Okay, so the uh, you know the trade leads to exploration, leads to colonization, leads to this. Um, in the narrative, was there what was the thing that that you're most proud of the way that it turned out in terms of the, the um, turning it into a narrative format, and what was the most difficult part to to narratorize, <laughs> to coin a word. Yeah, that that's an interesting question. Um, let me think. I, I think you'll you'll see this as you move further in the book. Towards the end, you know, we talk about uh, the issue of like slavery and the blacks, and what does it mean to you know? Here we are uh, running into an Independence Day weekend. What does it mean to celebrate independence and freedom when it was denied to so many people, and is today in many respects being denied to so many people? How do we how do we grapple the idea of celebrating an ideal that we're falling far short of? So this is something we're trying to figure out because in in part this book is a response to 1619 project and critical race theory which I believe are marxist attempts to attack the founding fathers as white supremacist bigots in an attempt to discard the ideas that they stood for. We're tearing down Jefferson statues and others cuz oh how dare they have slaves and you know they were white supremacists and the patriarchy 
But that's an effort from these Marxist organizations and activists, not just to attack the man and the men, but the ideas they stood for so that we can have, you know, socialism and Marxism and all the rest. And so as we see this spreading through schools, as we see this ideology, you know, having this big uptick in our society, that's when our we started working on our book. And so as we thought about this in our book, well, how are we going to cover that issue? How are we going to talk about slavery? How are we going to approach this issue? We wanted to end this story with talk because here they are declaring independence. And so we, we end the book talking about what it means to declare independence as like a one-time act. But then what does it mean to like fight for independence and freedom on an ongoing basis, right? The, the revolution um, is an ongoing thing. You can declare independence once, but, but revolution is like a daily thing that we're constantly working on evolving and revolving and trying to, you know, revolutionize the status quo. So we end with a chapter where we talk about this more serious issue of, you know, how some people were treated and what that means for us today. And how can we celebrate independence? Sometimes I say that the 4th of July is more about memorializing independence than celebrating it because the world is so different today. So it is a bit more of a serious topic. And, and before we kind of send people off in this last chapter uh, into next year's volume two that we hope, we wanted to make sure that we approach this in a way where we're not trying to tear down anything. We're not trying to make people feel bad about, you know, have like white guilt or, you know, American shame or any of these types of things. There is a lot to celebrate, especially the ideas that this country was founded upon that we should make popular today. So that, that took us a while to figure out like how to uh, manage that. We went through a few drafts. I really like where we landed, but uh, we did a lot of like test reading with families kind of say like, how are your kids handling this and what worked well? And so we had to refine it a bit, but I really like where we landed and I'm really excited that we could end the book talking about what that means, what it means to uh, declare independence, but fight for revolution and, and freedom on a daily basis. Well, as I say, I was I just got through chapter three with my boy, and um, I was very glad, very glad to see the introduction of the idea um, as Fred, the neighbor who's guiding Ethan and Emily through this this narrative, um, explains to them that some people want to make history about good guys and bad guys, but we should make it more about trying to understand people rather than judge them. And that's such an important point that is so meta to the idea of introducing history to children and teaching children about history. It's the kind of thing that, as an adult, you start to obviously encounter, well, okay, so what does this mean, and how do we process this, and how do we, how do we put ourselves in the shoes of someone in that time period, and do we judge them for this or that, or how do we, what standards do we judge them by? That's a big thing that we really do need to think about when we tackle history. How do we, do we dismiss entire peoples and ideas and or how do we deal with this i'm so i'm glad to see that being inserted into into a children's history textbook to get them thinking about this at a young age i think this is the type of thing we need to be thinking about when we start confronting even what is history obviously it is a constructed story of some sort so how do we construct that story and from what building blocks and then how do we judge the characters in that story or maybe we shouldn't be judging them at all I love what you're saying. It resonates with me so deeply. You know, story is, is I think we're remaking history on a daily basis. It's all about the narrative that we frame it with. Think of you as an individual. If you have trauma in the past or you had this negative uh, experience or I was bullied as a kid, right? Like how I frame that experience is how I decide who I'm going to be today. I can choose to look at that as a horrible thing and I'm a victim and there should be reparations and, you know, we should have anti-bullying laws and punish these people to make me feel good about myself, right? Or I can choose to look at that as a growth opportunity. I can have compassion for the bullies 
that maybe they were being beat by their parents, you know, and I can try and understand why they did what they did. I can recognize that it was a formative growth period for me. And so I can frame my own history in a different way that empowers me to be a free thinking, you know, empowered person today. That, that's why I think history, it really depends on the narrative. It depends upon the lens through which we look at it. At the, on the back of our book, at the top, we have a quote that I'm sure no one uh, who follows you, James, will need any reminder about. We, we talk about it all the time. Those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. And, and it's more about the mistakes of the past, the errors, right? Those who don't learn from the, the errors and problems of the past are doomed to repeat them. We know this quote. We, we've grown up with it. We hear it all the time. The problem is that until now, history education for K through 12 students has not taught students to learn from the past. At best, these books have taught kids about the past. It's like we're literally walking them through a museum of history and it's like, oh, look, this is a cannonball that they once used. This is a fork that they once used to eat. Here's a letter that they once wrote. And it's, again, that superficial stuff. We're learning about history. It's interesting. I mean, I, I enjoy that stuff. But then we're like, okay, kids, move on to the cafeteria. Let's go. like it's a very passive approach to history. We're teaching them about the past. We're not teaching them to learn from it. And so, is it any wonder that today we have this, you know, so many young people supporting socialism and big government and not understanding history at all? They haven't been taught how to learn from it and therefore apply. Why should a kid in 2022 care about what happened in the 1770s? I know young Connor as a student, was never given that context. It was memorization, pump and dump, right? This happened on this date and blah, blah, blah. I never had the context for why it mattered to my life today. So what we're trying to do with our book is to say, here's all the things that happened, but more importantly, here's the ideas that they fought for. Here's what they debated. Here's why it mattered to them. Here's why they sacrificed blood and treasure to fight for these ideas. Oh, and by the way, here's how these ideas relate to our modern day Let's talk about it and have some discussions. Suddenly, history becomes more contextual. It becomes more meaningful. And I think parents are going to see far more depth in interest and understanding of our history so that we can have, again, frame the past the way, the way that you know, we ought to, that best empowers us to fight for you know, that revolution and fight for freedom today. That's the goal. That's what we're working on. It's so unlike anything else that's done, but I think that's that's the problem. We're repeating the mistakes past because I think you alluded to this in your intro, you know, that I think this is intentional. This is a dumbing down of, you know, the rising generation for a very specific purpose. And if young people are not equipped to learn these lessons, they are then subject to repeating them very easily by manipulators and politicians and the media and others who can dupe them into the same problems that had they only learned from the mistakes in the past, you know, huh? what, what is that quote? It's uh, fool me once, shame on you fool me twice, shame on me. I should have learned from that first time to not be fooled again, but we're being fooled and fooled in the public fool system, which I love that term now, right? We have to learn from the past. That's what we're trying to accomplish. Well, I, I resonate with that approach so much because uh, growing up and studying history in school, I never, ever had the sense of history as a lived ex experiential Thing. It was always, it was always just that you know we're studying something. It it might as well have happened to a different species of human. Like oh, that was people hundreds of years ago. But now we're so different. And I never got that experience. Certainly not through my history textbooks. Of no, this was real things happening to real people who were making decisions based on you know this. 
this this could have been you if you were just and now i'm of course as you get older you start to think well you know this event only happened 40 years before i was born and now it's 40 years after i'm born and oh no wow <laughs> you start to get this different perspective on history but i wish i wish i had had that as a youngster so i could have understood the history in a better sense and i hope that that's what this will be accomplishing with the readers and more than just hoping when this history textbook takes off and becomes a billion bestseller and everybody is clamoring for volume two, where will volume two pick up and uh, what period of time will we be covering? You know, we, as we did volume one, as we capped it off, we tried to think like, what will, what, what, where's the best ending point and how can we tee this up for the best uh, success in volume two? So briefly, you know, with volume one, we've also produced curriculum. We've got like 200 pages of curriculum activities and, and, projects and things that reinforce the ideas that uh, the kids are learning about in volume one. For example, uh, we have a recipe called continental cookies and there's 13 ingredients and every ingredient is necessary for this. So we talk about the 13 colonies and the ingredients have specific kind of, uh, 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 traits to them, attributes, you know, that relate to that particular colony. And so, hey, then you can go make continental cookies with your family. And so it's an opportunity to like reinforce the ideas from the book. And then we've got an audiobook and we've got um, videos as well. Um, they're all at tuttletwins.com slash history, all of those resources. And so as we ended volume one, we're trying to figure out how do we tee this up for volume two? Um, and, and this is very tentative. So uh, James, I'm going to share with you and, and your followers kind of some raw thoughts as we have been trying to, to map out on the back of a napkin, like uh, what are the chunks of history that we uh, do for uh, this four volume series? So tentatively, what I'm thinking through is like, well, clearly volume one ends at 1776. So now it is, we're capping it with the Declaration of Independence and the Dawn of Revolution. And then volume two, I'm thinking we would go all the way through like 1789, ratification of the Constitution, Dawn of the Republic. And then volume three, I'm thinking, okay, well, now it's a new country. we got this new constitution. I want to uh, go all the way through, uh, you know, civil war, war between the states and, and post-reconstruction. So that's, you know, dawn of, of the nation state, dawn of nationalism, where no longer is it a confederation of free states. It's, you know, the nation that, that controls everything and keeps you in line. And so that's when we have the rise of nationalism. Volume four, tentatively, again, I'm mapping this out down the ways, but we can go all the way through you know, the progressive era of the early 1900s, uh, probably go through the, the two world wars and end with Dwight D. Eisenhower. Like this is just the idea again in my head that is subject to a lot of refinement, but tentatively we would finish volume four and thus the, the whole series with Dwight D. Eisenhower, you know, at the end of world war two, he's, he's uh, surrendering his you know presidency, stepping down, he gives his final speech and he gives a warning about the military industrial complex, you know, to, so the dawn of the military. So we have these like four phases of America, right? Uh, you know, we go through independence and this confederation through, we now have uh, this new republic, and then we have the, the nationalism, and then we have, so that's dawn of empire. And so uh, volume five, I think, is still being written, right? And this, that like, are, are we an empire? Like, I know you're an expat, and others are all over the world, and America's footprint is very large. And what does that look like today? What is the history that we're writing today? And is it one where it's tied to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence? Or is it completely different? And if so, what can you and I as individuals and reading with our kids do about that to instill these important ideas and to pull us back towards this laissez-faire, classical, liberal, you know, life, liberty and property, small government approach? Um, I think we've got a lot of, shall we say, opportunity 
to get back in that direction. And so the hope for us is to create this multi-volume series over the years um, that basically says, look how far we've strayed from where we started. You know, let's hear ways that we can try and get back in that direction. Awesome. Well, I am indeed an expat, but not an American expat. I'm Canadian. So <laughs> my, my child, who is Japanese, born in Japan, Japanese mother, Canadian father, is going to be the best informed Japanese <laughs> child on American history <laughs> in his class, for sure. <laughs> and I've talked with a bunch of Canadians, including some early reviewers, and I, I would ask them, like, why do you guys care about American history? I wanted to better understand. At least their answer was, well, you know, your history is our history in a lot of ways. And, you know, Canadian history is, in their words, you know, kind of lackluster with these ideals. So we want to be, you know, we want to adopt those you know, traditions of the John Locke life, mm. liberty, and property. These are American principles. That's why the Tunnelton's books, we translate them into a bunch of languages. We sell them all over the world. Like, ultimately, this is an American history book, but it's about the ideas. Therefore, you know, it's for everyone because these are the ideas that we need every government to adopt, that we need people all over the world to embrace. Uh, John Locke was an Englishman, right? Like, this isn't just an American thing. This is a worldwide thing. And so I love this idea, Canadian and Japanese, and yet you're learning these these early ideals. And I'll say this to cap off uh, this point, James. You know, when the Constitution was written, uh, it has been adopted in large measure, large chunks of the Constitution by over like 200 countries, right? This idea of confederation and self-sovereign you know, rule and and a written document to restrain the government. Granted, I don't know that the Constitution has totally worked out in its aims of actually restrain. When you read the anti-federalist papers, the people warning about the Constitution's deficiencies, I think they were more right in their predictions of where we've landed than the federalists. Uh, nevertheless, you know, these ideas spread all over the place. So that's the goal. Yes, it's an American history book. I love this idea about a Canadian Japanese <laughs> kid learning these ideas too, because it exemplifies this exact issue that these are ideas for everyone all over the place. Yeah. Well, Declaration of Independence is a is one of the only political documents in history I could sort of get behind. Can, yeah, Constitution starts to starting to go in the wrong direction. Yeah, government, yeah. yeah. But, but actually, you know, that really does send me back to my um, public fool system indoctrination uh, back in Canada, where I remember. It must have been junior high, the, uh, the the old projector slide thing where, you know, it had the narration and it beeped to go to the next slide thing. And I remember getting the Canadian history thing and it was like, the American nation was founded in blood and, and, and war. And, you know, but the Canada was founded in peace and negotiation. And that makes us so much better. And I remember, I remember even at the time not really being convinced by that. But it wasn't until much later that I realized... Oh, all these incredible ideas about human freedom and these incredibly tectonic, powerful, philosophical ideas being propounded. Uh, yeah, it's very much tied in with American history. That's just the way that that transpired. So I think it is valuable, even, even if you're not American, but perhaps especially if you are American. At any rate, I hope everyone will at least check this out if they are interested in teaching their children a little bit about this history and these ideas and why they are important. So... Hold up the book again. Tell us the title and where people can get a, their copy of this book. So thank you, James. This is America's History, a Tuttle Twins series of stories from 1215 through 1776. You know, and just to show like one example, like this is heavy on illustrations. It's fun storytelling. 
we're walking through the whole thing. We have these sections at the end where Elijah and I share our thoughts about what we just talked about to give context, additional context. We have these let's talk about it sections, which again, we're trying to help them understand the modern relevance to what's going on. Um, this book, along with the curriculum and the audiobook and the videos, it's all at TuttleTwins.com slash history. We've got a launch bundle where you get all of those bonuses for free and a discount off the book at TuttleTwins.com slash history is where you can find it all. Excellent. Well, I'm very much looking forward to hearing um, feedback from the listeners out there who do put, uh, give, put this in front of their children. I'm looking forward to hearing more from my own boy and <laughs> his uh, continued take as we continue working through it. And uh, Connor, I hope we can talk to you again in the future to talk more about, well, maybe volume two next year. Thank you, James. I appreciate it very much. All right. Take care.